Hello and welcome to the Harvard EdCast, a series of conversations with thought leaders in the field of education from across the country and around the world. I'm your host, Matt Weber, and this is our 20th show, and appropriately, time to reflect on who we've spoken to, the key players, the organizations, and the ideas that will actually make transformative school reform a reality. Today, we're lucky to have Dr. Warren Simmons, Executive Director of the Annenberg Institute for School Reform at Brown University, here with us to help understand the landscape we are faced with. Welcome to the EdCast. Thank you very much. I guess a good place to start might be understanding a bit about your role and the role of the Annenberg Institute in this sort of national conversation. Hmm. Well, I've been at the Annenberg Institute since 1998. The founding director was the late Ted Sizer, also the founder of the Coalition of Essential Schools. I arrived in 1998 uh, after having worked in the standards movement at the National Center on Education and the Economy in the 90s, where we worked with the Clinton administration and 17 states and six school districts on the development of the national standards and performance-based assessments, the first round, because we are now engaged in the second <laughs> round of that effort. And throughout my career, I've worked on urban education reform from a variety of different levels. I've been a school district administrator in Prince George's County, Maryland, right outside of Washington, D.C. I led the Philadelphia Education Fund when we supported the work of David Hornbeck, who was the superintendent of Philadelphia Public Schools in the mid-90s to implement standards. And I began to understand two things. Number one, there was a great emphasis on school reform, but very little attention was being paid to the district uh, as an entity that takes reform to scale or impedes its progress. Uh, number two, uh, I began to see in my experience with governors and presidents and chief state school officers that education reform simply wasn't technical. It was political, social, and cultural endeavor as well, and for education reform to succeed and to be sustained at scale, uh, broad-based ownership uh, uh, needs to occur. And I'd seen that ownership built at the national level and the uh, various meetings of governors and business leaders and chief state school officers with various administrations. I hadn't seen similar types of efforts occur at the local level, particularly in, ur in urban communities involving mayors and city councils and grassroots activists and faith leaders. And uh, I learned the very hard way in Philadelphia that the kind of alignment and coherence that seems striking at the national level uh, either doesn't exist or is only weak at the local level. And so national and state policies often arrive at the doorstep of urban communities w without having an opportunity to vet them to understand their implications and even to inform them. And so at the Annenberg Institute, when I arrived in 1998, we embarked on an initiative to focus on the uh, urban school districts as a lever for change. Um, in fact, we had a task force in the future of urban districts that basically, I think, issued one of the first clarion calls for thinking about how to redesign the districts into systems that support portfolios of schools, schools that have different kinds of pathways to meet the needs and aspirations of different communities, schools that could be traditionally governed or governed by uh, charter management organizations or faith institutions or community-based uh, organizations, but also at the Annenberg Institute, in addition to our work on district uh, reform and leadership, we understand the importance of community organizing and engagement, and so we've strengthened over the last uh, five years our emphasis on building uh, the knowledge base that local communities uh, need to have in order to be informed advocates. 
Waiting for Superman, which has been lauded in some quarters, uh, presents local communities as almost passive victims of either good schools or bad schools. They have, they have their fates determined by lotteries. Well, we've seen instances where local communities in New York City and in Philadelphia and in Oakland, where parents have become their own superheroes, where they're not waiting for Superman, where they are waiting for information and knowledge that they can use to become a more effective advocates. And so we've emphasized the importance of community organizing and engagement. And then the third leg of our work, of course, is research and policy because we think our work in district redesign and leadership and our work in community organization and engagement has to be grounded in sound uh, research evidence about the characteristics of effective schools, effective districts, and the kinds of learning environments that are supportive of particularly urban students and the needs that they have. Now, now the Institute prides itself in helping create something that's called a smart educational system. Mm -hmm. what, what does this mean and what are some of the examples of this? Uh, well. There's a recent publication produced by the Educational Testing Service that looks at the achievement gap between African Americans and Latinos on one hand and white students, and the title is the question, when did progress stop? And research seems to indicate when you look at the NAEP scores that the gap was um, being narrowed between African Americans and Latinos from the 60s till roughly the 90s. And since the 90s, um, uh, we flatlined in terms of our ability to narrow the, the gap. And that's ironic, given that in the 90s we had the Goals 2000, you know, the birth of the standards movement, and we've continued that with No Child Left Behind, and yet the achievement gap hasn't narrowed significantly during that time. Uh, the hypothesis in uh, the ETS report is that during the 60s and 90s, we not only talked about strengthening education, but we also provided a, a stronger platform for children and families and their well-being in terms of health, in terms of housing, in terms of jobs and employment. And so for us, while we understand that poverty uh, doesn't necessarily predict one's academic achievement, uh, we do think it's important that education systems to succeed, particularly in serving disadvantaged and poor communities, they have to coordinate their work with housing uh, authorities, with community-based organizations and faith institutions, so that we build a platform of support both in school and out of school. I mean, the Harlem Children's Zone, which is often narrowly viewed as an organization that runs a, a set of charter schools in Harlem, is actually much more than that. Jeffrey Canada has spent the bulk of his career creating baby colleges, arts and recreation programs, tenant associations. So the Harlem's Children's Zone, along with Manchester Bidwell Corporation and Logan Square in Chicago, Manchester Bidwell is in Pittsburgh, these are examples of organizations that try to provide supports for entire families. Uh, with education perhaps at the center of their endeavor, but understanding that for children to succeed, it's easiest for that to occur when their families are strong and, and healthy. And so essentially uh, creating systemic interfaces between schools, faith institutions, businesses, higher education institutions is what we argue for when we talk about a smart education system. I think the framework that echoes our perspective best is the broader, bolder approach authored by Pedro Nogueira and 
Richard Rothstein, among others, but you also see it in the Mott Foundation's New Day for Learning initiative. And you also see it very early on in the work of the Annie E. Casey Foundation and uh, New Futures, which spearheaded the notion of collaboratives, uh, government, city agencies, um, combining their resources. So we think a smart education system is more important uh, than ever before in an environment where there are going to be cutbacks. We can't waste our resources. We have to figure out how to maximize them by, by coordinating them and focusing them on children and families in underserved communities. What, what is the relationship and the level of outreach between the Annenberg Institute and, say, a school dis district that may be struggling? Is it that you're going to them with your toolkits and your products and saying, here's how to change, or are they identifying that they have problems and are they coming to you? How does that work? Well, it works in uh, several ways, probably both. Uh, you know, obviously, we have a communications office, and uh, we have a website, and uh, we publish something called Voices in Urban Education, uh, which is a catalog and a journal that puts out topical pieces written by practitioners and policymakers, for, for the most part, for a broader audience. So people visit our website, they see the tools that we have available to us, and they request our support. Uh, in other instances, uh, we work with several districts on behalf of foundations who are promoting um, various initiatives. For instance, we are a grantee of the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation and their uh, recent initiative to help several districts develop college readiness indicator systems, both identifying indicators, but also thinking about the kinds of interventions and supports to ensure that students are on track. In the past, we've worked with the Carnegie Corporation, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, with several districts to support high school reform. So typically, it's through our work on behalf of funders with districts. It's through our work independently with districts and our support of leadership networks. I co-chair the Aspen Urban Superintendents Network with my colleague Bob Schwartz here at uh, Harvard. Uh, and so through individual relationships, through foundation initiatives, uh, and through outreach from union leaders, from superintendents, from school board members, we establish ongoing relationships with uh, urban communities. And what would you say are some of the, the greatest success stories from your work at the Annenberg Institute and in a community or a district that you've seen systemic change in? Ah, greatest su success story. We'll have to qualify that um, because I think the, the struggle that we have in all of our work is maintaining success over time. And so what I can talk about are periods of success um, at the Annenberg Institute when we worked with the seven uh, districts as part of the Schools for a New Society. I think we helped those districts make considerable progress in fundamentally redesigning their high schools with the support of the Carnegie Corporation and the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. Uh, several districts have used our central office uh, redesign tool to fundamentally reshape their central offices so they provide more resources to schools, provide more autonomy to principals, and collaborate better with schools to serve uh, their needs. We've helped districts like Boston um, do transition studies to identify the progress made under previous leadership, in this case it was Tom Paisant, and to set a roadmap for future leadership, in this case uh, Superintendent uh, Carol 
Johnson. Uh, most recently, two years ago, we led an urban education task force in uh, Rhode Island. It was impaneled by the governor to develop a framework for the fundamental redesign of uh, the urban school, five urban school districts uh, in Rhode Island. Much of that work is bearing fruit under the leadership of uh, Commissioner Gist. Um, the, the real challenge is sustainability. Um, and so we continue to understand the need to inform constituencies to create not only technical tools, but the political, social, and cultural will to take the work forward over time. Is the inability for something to remain sustainable, is that mostly due to economic issues, political turnover, uh, societal mores that change? Why is it that things cannot be kind of carried through political? All, all of the above. I mean, think about race to the top. Billions of dollars invested in a number of states um, and the implementation over the next few years will be jeopardized by the economy. Uh, also, at the same time, in many of these states, there's been a turnover due to the last election of governors and chief state school officers, even in the winning states. And so the question in Rhode Island and in Tennessee and in other places is will new leadership support their original application, winning applications, and support their implementation over time. And so th this is work that a proposal and a grant uh, being awarded on, on day X um, won't deliver without continued public engagement and information and sustained political action over time. Is this a, a system that cannot be fixed then? It, it is, if those are the issues, what is it that we can do to sustainably remedy political turnover that ends initiatives, say, like what we saw in Washington, D.C.? Well, we believe, you know, fundamentally that um, <laughs> Rather than arguing for the need for an individual superman, that if you invest in adult and youth organizing, you create multiple superheroes who can sustain the work over time when an individual inevitably loses power or loses a battle. Uh, and, and so I think that we, we suffer in this country at this particular time from an underinvestment in community organizing and engagement with the failed belief that a superhero uh, over a two-year, three-year period of time can fundamentally change a system in the community uh, in and of itself. Uh, I think that's folly. I think there's a long history of that being folly in the, in the local, in local levels. Mayoral control was seen as a device that would stabilize uh, and focus political action in places like Chicago and in Boston, and to some extent it has succeeded. But uh, even in those cities, and uh, most recently with uh, Mayor Adrian Fenty, we see that uh, you know, a pretty solid reform agenda can be undermined by failure to build broader ownership by simply organizing constituencies, helping them understand and feel part of the reform rather than passive recipients to it. Sort of through your voices in urban education. It's a round table in print. We do something similar to that. It's in the form of this podcast. We get together education reformers and thought leaders and ask them sort of what is it that we can do to change this system. And my question to you is, you know, of all the people that we've interviewed, or of all the people out there in the educational world or just in America right now, are, are there three or five people that you'd like to see in a room together that can really work out these issues, say, Arnie Duncan, Bill Gates, Jeb Bush, Randy Weingarten, are there certain individuals that need to really be in the same room to say, listen, let's, let's do this? Mm -hmm. 
Ah, interesting. I, I've been in a room with many of those uh, people. Um, I think it's not being in the in the room, it's being in the room over time and with a broader set of constituencies and with um, addressing the power differentials. You know, when you're in the room with the education secretary and a governor and you're the director of the Annenberg Institute or you're a leader of a grassroots organization, there's a power differential there. Um, and uh, so, yeah, I think I'd like to have Jeffrey Canada, a good friend and colleague, in a room with the education secretary, but I'd also like to have Randy Weingarten present. I'd like to have Ruth Simmons at Brown University, and I'm not saying that because the Annenberg Institute is at Brown. I'm saying that because higher education uh, needs to be called to task uh, to provide uh, more intentional, direct, and systemic before, uh, supports to urban school systems, suburban and rural school systems, for, for that matter. But I'd also like to see more grassroots leadership in the conversation. I'd like to see the Urban League and NAACP in the conversation. And I know both organizations have been working on uh, education reform frameworks, the National Council of La Raza. But those are national organizations. What I, I'd really like to do is I'd like to see uh, in this country uh, something that they've done in the United Kingdom, which is have a, an, an urban education conversation. That's where the needs are the greatest. Uh, that's where the populations are the most diverse. And I'd like to convene mayors, uh, city council leaders, school superintendents, union leadership, and grassroots leadership in a small number of cities to have a conversation about the kinds of supports they need from states and the federal government that would allow them to take reform to scale. What we tend to have is a conversation where the federal government and the states who meet regularly, the chiefs, the governors, the business round table, the administration meet and on an ongoing basis. And they formulate a set of plans. That's what Race to the Top essentially is, a formulation at the state and national level that's then visited onto uh, urban districts. Uh, and uh, they're asked to make it work without having input in its, in its overall design. So I'd like to see that change. I, I'd like to see an urban education initiative that's really formed from the bottom up rather than the top down. My next question was going to be, who, who is the person to, to pull all these stakeholders together? And uh, maybe it's you. <laughs> well, well, I'm glad you said that. I certainly would, I would, would offer that. But uh, I think, you know, thinking about Pedro Negara and Jeffrey Canada and um, mayors of cities, Newark, you know, Cory Booker, I think it's important, Mayor Bloomberg, I think it's important to have urban leadership, both at the municipal level and the community level, um, meeting uh, with um, federal and state leadership. In fact, next week, uh, Secretary Duncan is convening, I think, over 150 teams that represent uh, labor and management in um, school systems around the country to talk about um, bolstering collaboration. Uh, unfortunately, those, are, those meetings are one shot, uh, and what we need is a continuing dialogue in the same way that the chief state school officers and the governors and the business roundtable have a continuing dialogue that informs federal policy. I don't see that sustained dialogue except with the Council of the Great City Schools. Michael Casserly would, be, would sh should also be in this conversation. Um, that that sustained dialogue is is weak, if not absent, at the local level among you know various constituencies. The last question, uh, and this is on a personal note, mm -hmm. uh, of all the fields, of all the, the 
the concepts and careers and ideas you could have devoted your life to. Why education? Why urban education? Why is this your fight? Well, well, because I understand the transformative power of education. Uh, and my, un my understanding of education is somewhat different than how we now see it. Uh, my father was born in 1900 in South Carolina in one of the most oppressive uh, racist environments one can imagine. In fact, I can't imagine it uh, because I didn't live uh, that experience. My mother was born in North Carolina, which wasn't much better. Uh, but what they both taught me was to value learning and that my learning was the measure of a person's value uh, more than anything else. And my father didn't have more than an eighth grade education. My mother graduated from high school. Uh, and they didn't connect uh, what they knew with who they were. Uh, so my mother was a housekeeper for the most part. My father was a building janitor and superintendent. But that didn't define who he was. His knowledge defined who he was. And so for me, education was always that entity that allowed me to become who I wanted to be, despite what society you know, might have had in store. And I had the good fortune uh, to, you know, having graduated from high school in 1969, to um, encounter several events in life. So I got to McAllister College in St. Paul, Minnesota, because in 1969, in response to the riots, many liberal arts institutions opened their doors to inner city youth. And that's one of the reasons why I got into uh, McAllister College and graduated successfully. And then in 1973, many institutions and graduate schools felt they needed to do the same, and they opened their doors to students like myself into PhD uh, programs. And so I've seen in my own life you know, how education has transformed a young man from East Harlem who, until he was a junior in high school, didn't think much about what his future was going to be, to the person that I am today. And I'd like to see those same opportunities available to students like myself. Uh, I also you know, have had the experience to travel international, internationally over the last few years, and quite frankly, I'm shocked, amazed, and frightened at the leaps and bounds that other countries are making in Europe and in Africa and in Asia. And I'm worried that uh, our, our children today in our nation's inner, inner cities are going to be left behind unless the systems that we build make them globally competitive. And so. In the name of my father and my mother, I continue to devote myself to education reform because I believe in its transformative powers. Dr. Warren Simmons, thank you so much for coming on the on the EdCast. Inspiration and so many so many great nuggets of wisdom to take with us today. Thank you so much. Thank you. This has been the Harvard EdCast, a production of the Harvard Graduate School of Education. I'm your host, Matt Weber. Thank you kindly for listening. The Harvard Graduate School of Education, working at the nexus of practice, policy, and research.